The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in Washington, D.C. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about global warming, terrorism, inequality. Psych, it's about the presidential campaign cycle. I'm Annie Lowry from New York Magazine, and with me today is Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine. Hi, Mark. Hi, guys. Good to be here. Wait a minute, I'm talking like a guest. I'm one of the hosts here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm weighing in. Yeah. You're in the far reaches of New England. I am in the far reaches of New England. Are, are there any other reaches of New England than the far one? The near reaches, I would say, is like Fairfield. Um, and <laughs> joining us from New York, Mike Pesca of The Gist. Absolutely. On today's show. First up, we're going to review last weekend's hottest party. It was Saturday night. It was a rager. And of course, I mean the recent Democratic debate. Next up, Senator Lindsey Graham has officially ended his campaign for the Republican nomination for president. We will mourn its passing. And finally, we're going to discuss the latest love story involving Senator Ted Cruz. No, not the Princess Bride again, but the blooming relationship between Cruz and Trump. Finally, a segment we like to call If I Were in Charge. So this past weekend, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Martin O'Malley stepped up to the stage for another round of debate. But heading into the debate, controversy swirled around the Sanders campaign potential foul play. The DNC temporarily suspended access to the database because at least two staffers on the Sanders campaign misused the list. So, Mark, do we think that Sanders was kind of able to clean this mess up over the course of his time on the stage on Saturday night? Do we think that anybody cares? Uh, Yeah, I would say that I think the second question sort of answers First, I don't think a lot of people cared to begin with, except for some real insiders. And, and actually, if people cared more, it actually would be a bigger story because, I mean, it did involve illegal, perhaps illegal, but certainly improper and shady um, data breaches. But look, I, I actually, I don't think anyone has a sense that Bernie Sanders was behind this and that Bernie himself cares. And this is sort of true to, to form with Bernie Sanders. Whenever there's something that the media gets um, you know, somewhat fixated on, he's very, very quick to shut it down and sort of couch himself in, in substance and say, look, I don't care about this. All I care about is that we become more like Denmark and Norway and <laughs> says the same things he's been saying for 50 years. Yeah. So, Pesca, what's your take on this? Because it was it was it was this kind of internecine thing that I think like looked bad for Democrats in general. But again, I, I just think it was, it was complicated enough for people who know a lot about this to understand. And so the sort of penetration that it might get outside of that. And, and given that it's rebounding on Sanders, who a lot of lefties, you know, like they have very warm feelings towards and the notion that he's kind of beating up on the big guy and Clinton, I think, is like a weird dynamic. Yeah, here. I think that people, the regular voter, finds it not only is the issue itself opaque, it's really hard to analogize it to something on a personal level. And then if you explain it, you say, I got it. All right. They say scandals hurt politicians when they attach themselves to a larger narrative and that politi- a politician's opponents are always trying to do that. So even though Hillary's server scandal is maybe a little opaque, you could try to say, well, she th- she plays by her own rules. Well, what's the thing? How does it attach to any of the knocks on Sanders? In fact, you know, it would seem that, hey, would you believe that 73-year-old Bernie Sanders uh, wasn't uh, deeply involved in his data breach and hack? Everyone would say, I don't think the guy even knows how to use a computer. So it would seem that there's nothing about it that fits in with a larger narrative. And the way he apologized seemed fine. If anything, I really think Bernie's doing rather poorly. He seems to 
be suffering from the fact that as the discussion goes to national security, he's got almost nothing to say except, you know, Allende. And and if there's one thing, if there's one thing, it's that, look, I think the guy speaks the truth. I think he speaks from his gut and I think he's got a lot of integrity. So does this hurt his integrity? Not the way he acted during the debate. Yeah, I guess so. And so what did you guys make of the debate itself? Which, by the way, was, again, strategically placed at a given time that, like, it it just ensured that nobody was going to watch it, right? Like, they might as well have had it at, like, 7 a.m. on Christmas morning or, you know, like, midnight on New Year's or whatever. And it wasn't, I mean, in my mind, it just wasn't that great a debate either. It wasn't. And, I mean, actually, I am sort of curious about whose idea this was or whether this is on purpose. I mean, are they actually striving for obscurity? I mean, do they just sort of figure if less people or if, if no one watches our debate, there'll be the illusion that we are all just sort of grown up sitting here and we're more serious minded people and all the noise is going to be given over to the Republicans anyway. I think at this point it's pretty, it's, it's, it's somewhat damaging to Democrats because I, I think obviously so much of the oxygen of this campaign has been dominated by the Republicans, especially Donald Trump. Certainly would be nice, especially if you're a Hillary supporter, to get the periodic you know, reminder and have people watch that this is someone who actually knows what she's talking about. As for the debate itself, I think it was fine. I think Hillary once again proved that she's extremely prepared for this. Sanders, you know, hit all of his high notes. I think he was very, very much in character and and you know, I don't think he lost any support at all. I don't think he gained any support at all. Apparently, Martin O'Malley, you know, made more noise than he usually did. Although I didn't really notice. Yeah, I was tugg- huh. I was toggling between it and football, and therefore a perfect analogy I think came to mind. Martin O'Malley, the times where they had to go to Martin O'Malley, that's the uh, that's the point after touchdown. That's an extra point. <laughs> the, this obligatory thing that everyone pretty much knows how it's going to happen. Now, the Jets did miss a point after touchdown. So that shows that something weird could happen, but it almost never does. I loathe his presence in the debate. And, of course, they're structured because, you know, Hillary Clinton's people have such uh, sway over the Democratic Party, and they didn't want to do anything. You know, their strategy was she'll certainly be the nominee. Let's not do one thing to jeopardize that. The question I have, and it's an actual question, is that a service or a disservice? Because in the first primetime debate, she did so well. It was week of the Benghazi hearings. It was the best week she's she had in 2015. And so you wonder, are her uh, handlers doing her a service or a disservice by cosseting her, by keeping her away from anything that could harm her? When she's out on the stage, she does really well. And maybe some more real world testing would be good. Of course, they would say, what are you talking about? The entire schedule is how we handpicked it. And look how great it's been working out. And that thing you're complimenting, the primetime debate, that's exactly how we envisioned it. Right. I agree with you entirely that this has like Clinton fingerprints all over it. But I think that the her strategy of basically just not getting into anything and minimizing these conflicts when they come up and letting the Republicans self-immolate is working fairly well this far. I mean, at some point it's going to be her versus, you know, probably Ted Cruz, but who knows? And at that point, they're really going to have to go on the offense. I think the rope dope I don't know sports, but I think it's working. <laughs> I, I would quibble a little bit, Amy, with the overriding premise that you know, it seems like sort of the chic choice that, that Ted Cruz will be the nominee. I, I still actually would give the edge to Trump at this point. Sure. Maybe even to Rubio. I don't know. I mean, I think that as Donald Trump has dominated the Republican primaries, in some ways he's also dominated the Democratic primaries. He has been a real boon to Hillary Clinton because you know, people who might be willing or, or eager to, to wage a protest vote against her in the Democratic Party. And, and there are a lot of Democrats who really, really don't want to be voting for her. 
probably are scared straight to a point where, yeah, we better take this seriously from the get-go, and we don't really have time to split with some protest candidate like Bernie Sanders, and, and let's actually get down to business here now. Yeah, I think that that's right. National politics in 2016 is no place for a protest vote. Save it for the municipal elections. We are so divided, a <laughs> protest vote. I actually think it's going to be Rubio, but I'm biased by the fact that he seems plausible to me, and I don't know if the Republican electorate is in a plausible mood, but he's the most like Mitt yeah. and Dole and the version of George W. Bush they were putting forward and George H.W. Bush. They talked about Trump so much more than, not, not so much more, it's infinitely more because they didn't bring up any other Republican candidate. Um, it would seem that by doing that, you give him more oxygen, you ever so incrementally in this Saturday night debate, make it more likely that he'll be the candidate. That's smart or dumb because they think in the polls, head-to-head matchups, they, it'll be Hillary. Hillary does better against him than some of these other guys. On the other hand, he, you know, Obviously, if he's the nominee, that means he's that much closer to the president. Right. I, well, I think it's interesting because I'm, I'm actually I'm in New Hampshire as, as we speak, and I saw Rubio today. He's doing a swing through the state, and I was standing there. This uh, town meeting thing he did in the town of Rochester, which is you know in southern New Hampshire, and, and I was thinking this guy could make a really really good senator one day. I mean, this is someone who you know he's obviously polished, he's smart, he he actually you know he's written books about ideas. I don't know how. You know how deep his ideas are, but I actually said to him afterwards. I said, "You know, you've always at least prided yourself or paid lip service to the importance of ideas. Are you worried that this campaign will just sort of come and go without really any ideas in the Republican Party being kicked around?" And he basically said, "You know, I think eventually people will start paying attention to ideas." And I'm like, "Okay, so these last six months have been what exactly? These <laughs> this has just been like just sort of an exercise in in what exactly?" And he said, "Well, you know, I can't really do anything." And then he kind of, you know, did the the requisite. Well, if the media wouldn't pay so much attention to Donald Trump, you know, maybe maybe all of this noise wouldn't get in the way. Yeah, I think that it also it leads to something I've been thinking about a lot is if you're Hillary Clinton, which one of these guys do you actually want to run against? And I'm not sure it's. Donald Trump. I mean, I think that she's a good chance as long as the economy doesn't fall apart to beat any of them. But I think probably I think Rubio is probably the one that you least want to run against. And I'm not sure between Cruz and Trump, which one would be seemingly easier in her eyes. But I don't know if you guys have thoughts about that. Cruz's record is crazy. He's a crazy senator who no one likes. This is one of the reasons I think Rubio could win. He's he's still got a few bullets left in his gun. He hasn't really hit on the fact that he attached this rider that really did damage how much Obamacare pays out and everyone else in the Senate talks about passing meaningless resolutions. He's done more to hurt Obamacare than any Republican that I know of, tangibly. But the big thing is electability has not risen as an issue, really, in the Republican side, you know? He hasn't said it over and over. And once they start doing that, I think that if he wins, it'll be because Republicans are more eager to win the White House with a guy that they perceive to be electable than they are eager to be pure on something like immigration. And when he gets the, you know, if he gets the nomination, it will be because they think he's electable and then they will want him. He won't have been destroyed in the primary. Like Jeb was saying, I don't want to win the primary and thus destroy my chance in the nomination. Don't worry, Jeb's not going to happen. But I think that, you know, they'll, in other words, the Republicans, if they nominate him, will want him to portray himself as moderate and and electable. And that version of Rubio will be hard for Hillary to run against. All right. On that note, 
Moving on to candidates that Hillary sadly will not face, let's take a moment of silence to mark the official end of Senator Lindsey Graham's run for the Republican nomination. He's a friend of Podcast for America and maybe the closest we'll ever get to having a president on our show, but who knows? Maybe he left the race in order to take over Podcast for America. Maybe maybe this is actually his consolation. That would be good. I think that he'd be good at podcasting. He's been good at podcasting. Actually, I have an announcement to make. He's in, there's a three-minute pre-podcast for all our podcasts, and he'll be participating in that, the kids' table. Oh, Lindsey Graham. That's so awesome, Lindsey Graham. I like it. So I'm not sure that this, I mean, obviously he he was polling terribly, so I don't think that this shifts the race very much. But I do think that it says something kind of interesting about establishment candidates and, and, and who's kind of losing. First of all, I think Lindsey Graham's absolute zero support and and no poll, and just not showing up in the polls at all would prepare him perfectly for um, hosting this podcast. No, for um, you know, for, <laughs> sorry, I didn't say that. We can edit that out. You know, Lindsey Graham is one of those candidates who the media loves, but he also said this week as he was getting out of the race that his wing of the Republican Party just imploded. So he is part of the, the sort of the question of you know what happens to the Republican Party if. Donald Trump is their nominee. I mean, even you know someone like Bill Kristol, who um, you know, is obviously not running for president, and he has quite a bit of baggage. But he's actually saying, "What would the third party who, who you know call itself that nominates someone that is not Donald Trump, who is actually the Republican nominee? I mean, what what will where will the rest of us go?" Is essentially the point. And I guess one thing we'll learn is how big is the rest of us. I mean, if there is, we're talking 20%, like is what used to be the Republican Party, 30%, are they just losing their coalition so dramatically to begin with? Does it just make more sense just to split them in half and, and start again with two different discrete wings? Yeah, and if there is a third party that is the real Republican Party, then what do you call Donald Trump, especially since the Ukrainians took the Orange Revolution label? So I'm not sure about that. But the, I don't know if Lindsey didn't, you know, a guy like him, we say he gets into the race fine. He doesn't think he's going to win, but he gets into the race to get his ideas out there. He didn't have ideas. He had an idea, and that idea was 10,000 troops, ground troops in Iraq. And the candidate slapped him on the back, and Jeb Bush gave a congratulatory tweet about how great his ideas were, but fewer saying 10,000 ground troops in Iraq. I even wonder if he thinks his quixotic quest did anything. People have, are sort of in on the joke that anyone can run for president now, and it's just a great opportunity to get a lot of attention. And Dennis Kucinich sort of had this idea like in 2004, and Al Sharpton had this idea. And when there are six or seven people, I mean, I guess there's room for you. They're just I mean, The field is so big now. It just sort of does eliminate the the space for the totally qualified and yet probably won't win candidate to begin with. We'll miss Lindsey Graham. He he was um, one of the best presidential candidates I think we have ever had on this podcast. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Let's move on to the wider Republican field and uh, the blossoming buddy-buddy relationship between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. And so Ted Cruz is obviously, uh, he's gotten the Cruz momentum. Cruz momentum. Oh, stop. Uh, Don't, can we stop on the momentum? <laughs> no, we can't. We absolutely cannot. You can write an article about it, though. But, you know, oh, he man. is in some ways, at least uh, superficially, mimicking the Donald in order to sort of attract some people over to him. He's seemed to have more bravado on the trail. 
What do you guys make of this? And and do you think that he is purposefully sort of aping Trump or does this I mean, it does come from a deeper policy place in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing <laughs> he is determined that there is absolutely no value in attacking Trump, being attacked by Trump and going through all the Michigas that that, that would entail. And, and I think there's a whole track record now of candidates who have done that and who have pay, paid a price for it. But what's also interesting as a psychology here is that Donald Trump, he can just be completely disarmed by flattery. I mean, even someone like Vladimir Putin can, like, praise him in, in probably some attempt to troll the entire population of America in some ways <laughs> by, by praising Donald Trump. And Trump can just sort of think only in terms of his own ego gratification, and, and he can be genuinely flattered by it. And there's a school of thought that if someone like Vladimir Putin praises you, you either say something sarcastic or you sort of you know, stick his face in it or something. I mean, this is Vladimir Putin, for, for God's sake. And, and yet, you know, if Donald Trump, I mean, yes, I mean, this is, of course, he would be flattered. And these are two large, strong leaders who would naturally be simpatico. So there's a strategy is that when Trump eventually loses altitude, he'll be there to you know, inherit a lot of his supporters and to be the be the next logical, angry, conservative voice in there. I do think that there is something actually profound to the fact that that so late in the game, he has stumbled upon this like key that unlocks, you know, like all of the the way to defeat Trump was actually just to take him slightly seriously and to flatter him all along, which seems so counterintuitive to the way that we've all treated the guy for, you know, however long, like almost Mm. a year now. Right. And as much as we say about Donald Trump, oh, there's a certain genius to it. I mean, you the way he's dealt with the Putin praise and he's gone out and uh, argues with George Stephanopoulos. You know, they say he kills journalists. Show me a journalist oh, he's God. killed. I, With all the other stuff, you know the cult of personality will have gone way over the top. Went, fine. If you want to say all these voters, he's speaking to their anxiety. They secretly want to say that Mexicans are rapists and that Muslims should be let out. If we start seeing people in the Frank Luntz focus group saying, and yeah, who are the journalists he's killed? These are not issues that matter to Americans. No American is def- is trying to say, you know, Putin gets a bad rap for that killing the journalist or whatever it is, committed to protect journalists as something like 52 journalists since he became president of Russia. It's just absolutely crazy. I think Cruz, to go back to the original question, I think Cruz is, is disciplined and So many of the other candidates, well, there's an argument to be made that if you are Jeb Bush or if you are Rubio, if you are an establishment candidate, then you actually want to contrast yourself with the craziness of Trump. Cruz doesn't have that impetus. But man, Cruz seems like a really, really disciplined guy. And you can tell, I mean, he is a fighter. He's a fierce guy. I would think that his gut instinct when he gets called a maniac by Trump is to really lash out and eviscerate because you know that he thinks that he could win the war of words with Trump. But man, by playing a funny video and by laughing it off was absolutely, politically speaking, the right move. I don't think that he's a piker. I think he has terrible ideas, but I think he's really good at, you know, manipulating elections and people. It seems to be so fast fascinating that Cruz and and certainly Trump are are making a a play for the missing white voters, right, that they felt could have defeated Barack Obama and that this is what they are staking all of this on. And this is kind of like the ideological consistency that is shot through all of their campaigns. And I just think it's going to be fascinating to see to what extent that turns out to be wrong. Yep. Yeah. 
And now it is time for our final segment, which we like to call If I Were in Charge. Mike, if you were in charge, what would you be doing today? If I were in charge, I would be recommending everyone do what I discovered while uh, riding in a car and listening to the Sunday shows on my iPod. I don't usually what ride. The shows, as Donald Trump called The shows. I don't know. It's not even an iPod, is it? Those things are done, so it's a, it's a smartphone. <laughs> but I don't have a car. So I usually don't listen out loud, which means my poor eight-year-old son doesn't get to listen to uh, Stephanopoulos and Dickerson and Todd. Anyway, he does notice some things like, Dad, these are the same things they were talking about on the last show. I know that's how it works. So to interest him, I was, I was messing with the different speeds. And it turns out there is some sort of uh, truth serum in playing the candidates at half speed. So first we played Donald Trump at half speed. And here's what it sounded like. Some really bad things are happening and they're happening fast. He sounds drunk. Donald Trump sounds absolutely drunk at half speed. But it's not true for everyone. Then we played Bernie Sanders at half speed. We're going to go to Alabama. We're going to go to Mississippi. He sounds sad. Bernie just sounds sad at all the things that's going on in America. Then we played Chris Christie at half speed. Murder rate is down 61% in the last three years in Camden. And he sounds full. Like, he just sounds like he's experiencing indigestion and can't really get through everything he wanted to say. So I would suggest, if I were in charge of the world, I would suggest the half-speed truth detector for all the candidates. So Ben Carson, maybe that's been his problem the last few months. I mean, we have all been listening to him at half-speed. Yeah. Or Ben Carson at half-speed actually goes back in time. Interesting. Wow. (laughs) I like this idea. Flex capacitor. (laughs) Mark... If you were in charge. I would put a moratorium. I may or may not be referring to something that happened earlier in the show, but anyone invoking a Frank Luntz focus group gets (laughs) himself or herself to be punished by having to partake or be part of a future Frank Luntz focus group. (laughs) Sorry, Mike. I Actually, you know what? I will issue amnesty on you before we move forward with this policy. Well, I wasn't. I didn't invoke it as a means of truth. I just invoked it. Yes. No, but you're right. You invoked it ironically. And if I were in charge, everybody would have a very happy Christmas and a merry new year or a happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah, whatever it is that you're celebrating. So from all of us, that's all for Podcast for America. Thanks to our producer, Jocelyn Frank, and to AC Valdez and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about us, too. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Please don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show. For Mark Leibovich and for Mike Pesca, I'm Annie Lowry in D.C. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening.